Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, Benchy 1.1 was released. So what is Benchy? It's a library for easy and nice micro benchmarking in Elixir. So Benchy allows you to compare the performance of different pieces of code, like different function implementations, and it supports plugins to do nice pretty graphs and things like that. So it's been about three years since the last release, which was April 2019. And there was a blog post that accompanied this release, and it goes into the two major features, but also why it took so long to come out. This adds a new way to measure the execution of your code, which is counting the number of reductions. Previously, it would just use time or memory as the metrics it was comparing and using. So now it can also measure the number of reductions. If you're newer to the Beam, a reduction is a unique thing to the Beam virtual machine. It's roughly similar to like CPU load but it represents a small unit of work. And the beam will do this chunk of work and then the scheduler pauses a process and lets a different process work for a small amount of time. And that's a reduction. So now you're able to measure the difference in two functions or multiple functions in the reductions between the two pieces of code. So that's new and interesting. You have to enable that as an option when you're running the tests. The other one is a mix feature that I actually haven't used before. It's mix profile.eprof, which is an Erlang profiler. It's used to profile the execution of code. And now that's being brought into Benchy to let you expose the metrics that are already being gathered in this other tool, but pulling them into Benchy to say, here's the profiling information that we can gather while these tests were being executed. The term reduction just is always interesting to talk about. And, and I don't know if I have a clear understanding of like what exactly it is. You said like a CPU load, and I think that's that's fair enough. But I, I equate it to like function calls, right? Because like if you look at a gen server that's doing no work, it has a high reduction count, but it's not using CPU, right? But the loop is just a constant function call to itself, right? And so that's why it gets a high reduction count. Yeah, reductions are, are just really interesting to, to think about, especially when gauging performance and... If you have an infinite loop somewhere, your reduction count is going to be super high, uh, maybe, if it's super quick calls. you know. But function calls, I think, is like the equivalent thing I, I think of. And there's exceptions to that, but yeah. I was first introduced to reductions when using Observer, right? You look up an Observer and it says reds. Like, what is that? And so, okay, it's reductions. And then what is that? <laughs> and, and, you, and when it charts it, it looks a lot like a CPU chart like that you would see. So it is something that's unique to the beam, but it is a performance metric of how much work this thing is doing. But yeah, it does. I think a lot of it does come down to function calls. And you know what? We should dig deeper on that topic sometime and have someone come on and who who really can't explain it because we would all benefit, I think. <laughs> yeah, and maybe we will. One more thing that was in this blog post is addressing the issue of why it took so long for Benchy to come out, this new version. Tobias Pfeiffer, I hopefully got his name right. He was the creator and maintainer, and he went into the story about why it took so long. And the short of it is, it's that balance of this is open source, it's contribution time, it's just, it's my personal time, and a desire for perfectionism and saying that, you know, the purpose of this library is to give 
really good benchmarks on micro tests. And there was this edge case that he was running into where in this certain scenario, these very small measurements where you're only doing a test for a very short amount of time, it was giving a, a bad result. Talking about that desire to say, this is going to be correct. I'm going to do this right. And still, you know, having to deal with life and open source and personal time. So it just ended up taking a long time as a nasty little bug. But I just want to say congrats to the team for the release and fixing this nasty little edge case and also for being transparent and just kind of sharing the journey and what was behind that. Also in the news is XDoc gets a new minor feature that makes our docs look nicer. And that feature is syntax highlighting Heeks templates in XDoc. That's pretty nice. You know, Heeks being the HTML aware EEX templating language. So, you know, Elixir has shipped with EEX for a long time, starting to transition more into HTML aware EEX templates. And those haven't been syntax highlighted like very well you know, in recent history with Xdocs, but that's about to be solved. So upgrade your Xdoc version, add the uh, three backticks and the, the language identifiers H-E-E-X. You may have been able to guess that and they'll look a lot nicer. This is going to be really cool for documenting live view components or anything live view really. And it, yeah, it'd be easier to, to mentally parse now, right? You've got your Elixir code, you know, interpolation, you've got the uh, handlebars now. That's the new part for Heeks, and then, of course, your HTML in there. So they should be highlighted correctly now. Uh, we've got a link. Shows off Jose Valim talking about it. So there was another change that landed. Something about night mode was <laughs> improved. So, and David, I think you had something to do with that, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and that's, I don't know if that's released yet, but the, it's in master at least. So so just this, a little nit thing that always bugs me, and it's one of those nits that shouldn't bug me, <laughs> but it does. <laughs> If you've ever gone to a website and they allow you to change night mode on or off, right? Usually it's called dark mode. Dark mode on or off. And it's a radio button, so it's either on or off. And that's always bugged me because there's actually a third setting in there that you, you can't access. And that's null or system, whatever, however you want to phrase it. Null or system. System being treated as the default, I guess, when null is, is chosen. Xbox had the radio button, and so I changed it to be a three-item you know, drop-down. Why? Why does this matter? Oh, well, it mattered to me because as soon as you set that that radio button, you're either always on dark mode or always off dark, dark mode or light mode, I guess. But if if your OS, if you have it configured at sunset to automatically go into night mode, that would tell your browser to prefer dark modes and that would be ignored because now I have a setting that's overriding that, right? And so I wanted that system setting or that that null that null option. So anyway, that got merged into Xbox. So just nothing that you should worry about. In fact, if you're thinking about doing this on your website, you probably need to look at something more productive. <laughs> this is not <laughs> one of those things that anyone should like really care about. But hey, I I, I took care of it for for you on Xbox at least. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those weekend projects where you just you know want to do something. Maybe not the most productive thing ever, but you just want to do something fun, something that scratch that itch. It's been bothering you for a while. Yeah, yeah. You would have thought that I'd, I'd choose a, an Elixir thing to write, but that was like all CSS and JavaScript. So, <laughs> <laughs> Next up, the Elixir Patterns book is being pre-launched by the authors Alex Kutmos and Hugo Barauna. Hugo is the one behind Elixir Radar, and Alex Kutmos is the one 
behind the Promex library and is a host on the Beam Radio podcast. I haven't had a chance to pick up the book yet, but we're always excited to see more resources being available to the community. All right, also up, Avro X 2.0 is released, and our good friend Dave Lucia is uh, leading up that change. And so he wrote a great article that talks about Avro. If you don't know what Avro is, we don't blame you. I don't blame you. Avro is a data serialization system, and it's typically used with Kafka to express data structures. If you know what Protobuf is or Thrift is, you probably can uh, think of what Avro does. It does really similar things. It just expresses these schemas or these structures, uh, right? Like this field is an integer. And so uh, the, the change for Avro X is that he removed the Ecto dependency, which I thought was really interesting. So I'd love to learn more about that. And, and other changes like normalizing functions like encode and encode bang and decode and decode bang to do the usual, you know, exception or no exception, error tuple kind of stuff. Lots more details on his blog post, which we'll have a link to in the show notes. But yeah, Avro's an interesting tool. And if you're not using it, that's okay. Maybe you don't need to, but it's typically associated with uh, enterprise level organizations, right? Where you have maybe a lot more developers and you need to introduce systems to, to introduce schema change as well. And Avro can help facilitate that. That's my understanding, at least. And maybe we can learn more about Avro in a future episode. So stay tuned. Functional Conference 2022 online is Asia's premier functional programming conference. At the time that this goes live, you'll have just a couple of days before it goes live on March 24th, 25th, and 26th. So it's a single-track, three-day online conference about functional programming. It's not necessarily specific to Elixir, but we just wanted to include it here in case you're interested. And that's it for the news. Fly.io supports this podcast by providing editing services. Beyond being great for supporting us, they are a great place to host your next Elixir app. Check them out at fly.io. Today, we're being joined again by Jose Valim. Welcome back, Jose. Thanks for having me one more time. So this is part three of our five-part series where we're visiting with you about the development of Elixir. It's one episode a month as we count down to the 10-year anniversary of the Elixir language counting from the date of first public release. So last month, it was episode two where we talked about Elixir releases 1.4, 1.5, and 1.6. I've really been enjoying this process of just going through and learning about some of these things that have came out and particularly getting some insights into why they happened, why the changes came. And sometimes it's just remembering things that I'd forgotten about. And oh yeah, there's a feature here that does this. Oh yeah, I should be using that. Well, Jose, if someone just happens to be joining us now and they don't know who you are, maybe you can just give a, a short intro to who Jose Valim is. I am uh, Jose, the creator of Elixir, and I think that's all we need to know for those episodes. <laughs> well, Jose, so where would you like to jump in today? So we're going to talk through a few different releases of the Elixir language. So get us started. Yeah, so we are going through the change logs. And as you said, previous episode, we just did 1.6. That was actually, was actually a big release because of the formatter. So it was big in the sense like it was an important feature that I think most people grew to, to love it. But at the time, there were a lot of discussions. And now we are going to 1.7 and we're going to talk about 1.8 and then 1.9. And 1.9 was a big release too. We are going to get to it, but there was a very big feature in there. But something that was very interesting is that when we finished the episode last month, I was like, okay, so next week is 1.7 and 1.8. And I was like, wait, 
what was in one seven and one eight? <laughs> I actually I couldn't remember. I couldn't remember what was on one four, on one six. Like if you say, hey, what what, what was big back then? I can't remember. But like one seven and one eight, that is much more recent. I can't. And then I was even thinking it goes later. Like what was in one ten? I like I'm not actually really sure. <laughs> you know. And those are like. Two years ago, I think. So yeah, I'm actually interested to find out myself what we're going to talk about because. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe we should start off with a little context. Like this release 1.7 was in 2018. Is that around October-ish, like towards the end of the year? Yeah, and and going through the change log. So I think at this time we had already gotten a cadence of releasing in in October and I think maybe May or something like that. So a, a six months cadence and then we changed it and then we changed it again. We'll get back to it later in other episodes. But yeah, we were like, I think every May, every November or October and, and, and April we were doing releases. So it was October and looking at the change log, they are actually one big feature, but it's big in the sense that I don't think it made a huge difference in the Elixir community, but it made made a huge difference in the Erlang ecosystem overall. The, the change log says that this Elixir version supports EEP48. So what does that mean? So EEP stands for Erlang Enhancement Proposal. And the EEP48 is, I think, is the first Erlang enhancement proposal that I wrote. So you write a proposal, you submit it to the Erlang EEP mailing list, and this proposal was accepted. And this proposal was about unifying how Bing languages store documentation. Because today, like, so for example, imagine that you are implementing an Elixir IDE or you want to so in Elixir we always focus a lot on documentation so we can access well like you can we can generate HTML documentation you can access documentation in the terminal right you can access it in your IDE but then if you want to access the documentation for an Erlang module those features they were not there back then right because Elixir had its own way of storing documentation Erlang would store in a very different way so this proposal was about, hey, can we unify how every all Bing languages, they, how they should write and store documentation? So, sorry, I said it wrong. Not about writing. We don't say how language should write. We say how language should store documentation. So an IDE, for example, can access the documentation or like the xdoc to generate an HTML website. We can access the documentation regardless like which language wrote it down. So I wrote this EP, it was accepted. And after some time, the, the, the Erlang team started implementing it and they started making it so Erlang follows EP48. Before that, Radek, he was a developer who, who worked at the time at Erlang Solutions, maybe still Erlang Solutions. He was already working on some tools to, to bring some of those features to, to Erlang. So we were st starting to see some work on the Erlang side, but then the Erlang team is like, okay, we are going to start officially supporting EP48. And then Elixir was like, okay, we are starting to see some adoption of the EP48. We are going to adopt it as well. And one of the features that came through this adoption is the idea that you can have documentation metadata. So you can use an Elixir like at doc, and then you can pass a string, and that's the documentation. 
but you can also do at doc and pass a keyword list in there with like uh, deprecation or when that in which a, what is the version that a particular API was added. So this is what we call documentation metadata, and it was added by supporting EP48. So this is really a foundation kind of feature because I I think the immediate uh, benefits they were very very few. But after this, and when we started seeing everybody migrating to EP48, we are going to get to the situation that we have right now. So today, for example, if you go to hexdocs.pm slash telemetry, that's an Erlang project. But when you look at the documentation, the documentation was generated by Xdoc. It's using an Erlang theme. The colors are a bit different, but is the, the documentation for an Erlang project generated by Elixir Tooling. And it always started back here. So with time, we're seeing a lot of more projects. So now if you have an Erlang dependency, there is a high chance that you can access its docs in the terminal or in the editor as well. And all this work started in 1.7 and with the EP. Gotcha. And and this is, yeah, Elixir 1.7. And if I remember right, 1.7 works with OTP and back to 19 and up to 21, maybe it's 22. But I think the OTP version also makes a difference here. Is that right? Because they had to implement that as well in, in Erlang? So the way that EP48 works is that it defines like two mechanisms for to store the documentation and the early OTP versions, they, they were not storing in those places. So you would not be able to get anything. Actually, this was not my first EP. There was an earlier one uh, about storing language metadata. <laughs> That's actually a question I have is this was the first EEP that I was aware of that you were kind of driving. And I was wondering what your experience was like in working with the Erlang team, because I can see, you know, I remember in the early days when Elixir was coming out, just the, the, the feeling between the two communities, the Erlang and Elixir community, some, some in the Erlang community were like a little, you know, ah, what's this Elixir thing? You know, we're, we're fine with what we've got. I don't know the, the communities didn't feel like they were integrated. So I was curious as to how you perceived working with the team and saying, hey, here's some things that we would like to see change in the Beam. You know, so my experience with the Erlang OTP team has always been fantastic. Really no complaints. I always feel like I am listened to. I'm not sure if that's how to conjugate that. Even if we don't agree, for me, I always feel like, hey, you know, I, I feel like I was heard and we don't like, you know, they say, look, we don't we don't think this belongs to the language, but there is a reasoning and I can see their side. So it has always been perfect. I always tell this story of like when I first announced Elixir, I announced their link mailing list and I have a, a mere copa because I said like, uh, I think the slogan at the time was a modern programming language for the Erlang VM, which, you know, looking back was like, yeah, that was not the best way to announce it. <laughs> and so I remember that the reaction, the initial reaction on, on, on the mailing list back then was not uh, positive, but somebody from the Erlang team, I don't remember who it was. And I kind of could just go and check. And I've told this story like five times and I could always gun gun there and check but somebody said hey you know don't mind just continue doing great things I, I think it's great and i think part of the reason that i don't want to go there and check it's because i feel like it doesn't matter i feel like whoever it was it properly represents all the conversations i had with the the Erlang team you know 
I, I think it also ha helps that I am also in the position that people are sending me proposals a lot and I'm shooting them down. So, you know, when somebody shoots my proposals down, I, I'm like, yeah, no, I understand, right? It's like walking a little bit on the shoes. It's completely, it helps a lot to understand both sides. So the experience has always been great. And the other interesting things is that I don't know if we talked in the previous episodes, but there are some situations where Elixir added the feature and then the OTP team added the feature to Erlang and then we unified our, about the same, you know, so there were interesting things related to that. And I think now in Erlang OTP 25, that's coming out soon, the release candidate is out. There's even a feature that is inspired, not really inspired, but where the Elixir whiff is one of the influences and it's now going through OTP. I am okay, you know, with that. Like, you know, like maybe we have some ideas here in Elixir, let's try them out. Some of the ideas they are going to like and they want to bring it to OTP. Some other ideas they're not going to like naturally. I think at this point, it's a good dynamic. And sometimes there are many things where I'm like, if there's a high likelihood that they are going to accept it, then I will go and contribute it to OTP, right? I'm not going to... To, to wait, especially with things like improvements to the compiler, performance improvement, small like API changes. I've, you know, they have always been very receptive. So that's my usual go-to. But yeah, but sometimes I think for the, the bigger changes, I, I don't mind like Elixir being in a way like a test bed for some of those ideas. And even if they wait to see like how it pans out, I, I don't think they are like just waiting for us to try stuff. I'm just saying that, you know, if you are the first ones to introduce it, and then so like uh, Unicode strings allow in Erlang, they have proper Unicode string support for everything. And Elixir now relies on that. So I think, I think it's, it's a dynamic that works and I'm uh, pretty, pretty happy with it. So putting a cap on EEP48, which is about the documentation metadata. So that, that introduced since, that introduced deprecated authors even. So we see the benefits in that mostly in hex docs. So you can see the little notations there that this this function is deprecated or that it was introduced in 1.6 or something like that. So that's that's wonderful. Yeah, and here's here's a like a, a tip or a trick or something that you can do is that you can actually pass anything as metadata, any keyword. So you can use anything as metadata. And you can access that metadata X doc for you to group function. So I'm going to give two examples. So if you go to Elixir Docs for the kernel module, we have some things listed as guards in the docs, in the sidebar. So you go like they are guards and that's all done with the doc metadata. We just say, hey, this thing is a guard in the doc metadata. And then in our xdoc configuration, we say all the functions that have the guard metadata, they should be grouped under this special subcategory. Oh, I see that. And we also do it in, in an X. So if you go to hexdocs.pm slash an X, like the main module there, we, we have several groupings for the functions. And those are all built uh, on top of the metadata because uh, the NX API is like so, so, so huge. And we are like not even like 50% done. So we started grouping like what is a reflection thing? What is like traversing uh, the whole tensor? So that's one nice trick that we can do. And I think we, may be, we may even be able to do that with the module documentation metadata because you can also attach metadata to the module doc. So if you want to segregate some modules, so for example, some people ask like, you want to kind of have like some idea of private modules, you could kind of do something like that using the metadata. 
is tempting to start talking about private modules. I think that was a conversation that not so long ago, but let's not divert, divert ourselves. Like this is likely our, given there are like very few fe features, there's, there's like our one chance of having a short episode. So like, <laughs> let's, let's not throw it out. <laughs> So uh, documentation metadata, wonderful. Uh, Erlang is starting to uh, adopt that too. That enables things like uh, projects like telemetry to have a unified uh, dis display experience in, in Xdocs, which is fantastic. I really love that we did that. 1.7 really felt like it was coming together there. There was another feature there. I don't actually know the reason behind this, so I'm curious to hear from you. Once upon a time ago, if you were rescuing an, an exception or you're catching an exception, you would do system dot uh, get stack trace or something like that. There's a function you had to call, but that changed in 1.7 to be a, uh, is it a magic? Is it considered magic? What's the double underscore one? I think we call uh, pseudo variables. Pseudo variables, yeah. That's a very horrible name, I'm going to be honest. Because <laughs> there's, there's, there's nothing pseudo about them. <laughs> I mean, they're real. Right. No, it's because you access them as a variable. You don't put parentheses nor anything, but you can't set them. That's why it's like it's a pseudo var. You know, we could have called it like frozen var, but it's, I think it's a, also a horrible name too. But that's kind of the idea. They're like a variable. It's kind of like they are set for you by the tooling and they behave like a variable in almost any always we have to say what it is that we're talking about we're talking about the double underscore stack trace double underscore like all, all cap stack trace so this double underscore thing it's very common in python and they call it dunder i think for double underscore double under interesting that's why I said magic because I thought those were magic methods, and, and that's a that's a, a a term that they have there that they call like init, I think, or is something like that's a magic method, right? And so I was thinking this is a magic variable, I guess, for us. Tell us about this evolution from that function call to get the stack trace to this pseudo variable. So this was an Erlang change, actually. We had system stack trace, and that called Erlang get stack trace, and Erlang get stack trace was uh, deprecated. And I may be misremembering the reason, but from what I understand is that Erlang get stack trace would have the stack trace of the last exception. So you could like rescue something, get out of the rescue block, and that thing would still be pointing to the last stack trace. And sometimes the stack trace has half references to existing values which means that those values, they could not be garbage collected until uh, that whole process disappeared because it's per process or until that process died or until there was a new exception. So that's why they wanted to deprecate, like, you know, the, the accessing the stack trace should not be a side effect that happens and you store somewhere and you can access it anytime you want. It should be part that, you know, if you want to access it, you can access it in the in the exception. And then if you want to keep it around, you can keep it around. But the VM should not do, do it by default. From my understanding, it has been a while. That was the reason. So Erlang deprecated it. And it's actually there in Erlang, but it just returns an empty list. It's basically saying, you no, know, so all the code is most likely still working that called get stack trace. And I think the Erlang compiler may still rewrite it if it sees it in an exception or something like that. But that, that was the reason. There, there is a very clear runtime motivation in here, but I also think from like the language design perspective, it, it's much saner, I think, and, and, and clearer to access that only within. And safer, it sounds like. 
this could have trouble with like multiple processes. No, uh, it was always a scope to the current process. Oh, okay. So okay. It, you wouldn't you wouldn't have this kind of issues, but yeah. I wonder if stack trace would be incredibly interesting to everybody else, but maybe we can move on to logger. There was another change coming up in in, in logger that was pretty interesting, and I think we we continue to see an evolution here. Oh yes. What changed in logger for Elixir and Erlang? Yeah, so this is the other feature I was talking about, and this was really nice because uh, the Erlang community had something called Lagger for logging, and it was kind of like the de facto standard in the Erlang community. And Elixir had its own logger that borrowed a lot of ideas from Lagger. And then the Erlang team, they were like, okay, we want to solve like logging like for good. Like sometimes like the, the logger in Erlang could like get so behind it, it did not have any overload protection. So if your system was failing, the logger would not be able to process the messages quick enough and the VM would like lead to a out of memory kind of thing. So Lagger had protections for that. Elixir Logger had protections for that. And the Erlang OTP team, they said like, okay, we want, we want to address this. They reached out to me, like collected some of my feedback and they most likely reached out to the Lagger team as well. So they released a new Logger and I think this was in OTP 21. Uh, 20 or 21, because it makes sense, right? We are on 25, so four years ago was going to be 2021, yeah. They added their own logger, and this was a work that is mostly has been mostly spearheaded by uh, Wukash uh, Howleff, if I'm pronouncing his name his name correctly. And at the beginning, we were just like, okay, we, we want to start like unifying just a little bit, and we were like, we want to... I think the initial integration was like making sure that if you log something through the Erlang new logger, we'll also format it using like the Alexa syntax for terms and this kind of things. But over the next several releases, and this is still happening today, this is not done. We are like slowly incorporating more. So in a later release, we would make so. And I think at this point, we still like, if you log it something through Elixir and you log it something through Erlang, they would go through two like distinct pipelines, like distinct code paths. And now it's like, it's mostly unified. Like everything goes through the same code path. And the goal is to have the Elixir logging be like a very, very thin layer around the Erlang logger. And I think like in the future, there's still some work that needs to happen for this to become true in the future. We want to even like deprecate the Elixir backends. So I, if so, you're listening to this, like, don't panic. Don't say like, hey, I'm going to rewrite. <laughs> I just say like, this is a, this is like, there's still work happening to make this happen. So, so there's plenty of time. Basically, don't worry about it, but it's just something that we, that we, we consider. I remember that being a stumbling block for me. I think I was integrating a uh, or using a library that was using Logger, and we were upgrading Elixir versions, and we had to do a bunch of like checks to see like it, or, you know, what version are we on? Configured this way, and so anyway, I'm glad that that's yeah, that's that's going to get unified at some point, and, and I'm sure we'll revisit that in the next versions of, of Elixir too. Yeah, and I think this is great for the Erlang community, right? So I think like look at these from the Erlang perspective, it's it's awesome. Like it's a good time to be an Erlang developer as well, because 
they are getting like the, the accessible documentation as well. So like in the Erlang shell, you can actually access the Erlang documentation as well. You no longer need Lagger, right? So all the projects, they started moving away from Lagger because they can use the one in OTP. We were talking about like string Unicode as well, that they were getting those features. So, you know, the whole experience in Erlang was like also improving considerably. I'm going to blaze through a little, a couple points here because we still want to get to 1.8 and 1.9. And they have some really interesting things. And I'm, I'm anticipating we're going to talk a lot more about those. So I'm going to blaze through XUnit. So it sounds like we, we got failures and doc tests are now colored and diffed. So a little bit of developer experience, you know, improvement there. Assertions now include the value of each argument in the failure report. Oh, I kind of remember this. That was really helpful. Yeah. So, so just to clarify what this means, is like before, if you did like assert is atom and then a variable, we would say like, hey, we expect it to be true, uh, but but got false. But now we are going to say, hey, you called is atom with like one argument and the argument is this. So you are breaking down the argument so you don't have to go and sprinkle IO inspect in your test code. <laughs> yeah. Which, which of these clauses did it fall into? So we also got mixed test dash dash failed. Mixed test dash dash cover now includes a summary. You know, cut cover being coverage. So like lots, lots of good little, you know, sprinkles of, of developer experience improvements there. And I don't want to talk about it, but I just want to pin it to the time frame. Ecto 3.0 came around the same time. And that was a, that was another huge change. I, I imagine a lot of Elixir folks were probably using Ecto and Ecto 3.0 was a, was a huge change. So I don't want to get stuck there because that's a, that's a whole episode in itself, but, <laughs> and then also Phoenix 1.4, which I don't think was as big of a change, but that, that happened at, at the, at the same time. All right. Any, anything else on 1.7? Yeah, no, now that you mentioned Phoenix 1.4, I think one of the things in there, I may be wrong, but, uh, was also about telemetry and unifying how, like, telemetry is happening in the ecosystem. So, you know, going back to your question, right? Like you can see a lot of like unification and joint effort uh, starting like way back then. Uh, and we are all leveraging this stuff today. And really I'd say 1.7, a lot of what comes out to me just from this discussion, reviewing this change log is a lot of it was around developer improvements around X unit. Cause I, I remember those features. Those are great, very appreciated. And a lot of them we still rely on today and logger and the system trace, those are very core, very central pieces. And they're all happening along with the integration with Erlang. So I think that's just kind of like the big takeaway here is like, hey, there's a lot of collaboration happening between the Elixir project and Erlang itself, which I think is wonderful. Maybe we can cap that on 1.7. So 1.8, if this is following the six month release cycle, this would have come around May. 2019. So maybe you can walk us through the big things here. Yeah. So for 1.8, I think it was also overall a, a small release. I think there were like two main callouts on Elixir. And one was the deriving for the inspect protocol. I don't know why it took so long for us to do this. So let's break this down. So in Elixir, we have a feature called protocols. When you define a protocol, is your way of saying, hey, you can give me any data structure as long as this data structure implements this protocol. And you can define new protocols and implement protocols for existing data structures at any time. So it's a very, so like if you do like JSON encoding, decoding, you are using protocols. So it's a very useful extensibility mechanism. It's, it's an open accessibility mechanism. 
So we, we have these protocols for a while and we added deriving. I don't remember when we added deriving. I don't think it, it was there in 1.0. I think it came back later, maybe around 1.3, 1.4. I don't think we talked about it, but we added deriving, which is the, which is the feature where we can say, look, by the way, if you want to provide the default implementation of this protocol, you can do it easily by just using the at derive, the module attribute at derive and the protocol you want to derive. And when you do this, you're saying, hey, you can use the default implementation. So you can say like uh, at derive JSON to have a, a default JSON encoding and this kind of things. And this name comes from Haskell, by the way, from Haskell type classes. So it's like, hey, somebody defined the full implementation of that protocol. I want to use that default implementation and you derive that. And deriving for the inspect protocol is that before, if you wanted your own inspect protocol, you had to like define the implementation and define like maybe around like seven, 10 lines of code to select the fields you wanted to, to render. But now you can just say, I want to derive the inspect protocol. And I wanted to show only the fields A, B, and C. And then everything else gets alighted. It's just one line of code. And that's it. And this what and this came, especially on a time where uh, I think we were starting to talk a lot more about GDPR and private data. So, you know, if you're logging a user struct, right? Before we already had like security concerns, like you don't want to log the password and this kind of stuff, right? But now it's like, yeah, you should actually not log the email at all or any like private person identifiable information. And we made it as easy as it can be. It's like one line of code for it to select what you want to, to show up when you print a data structure. What I love about that one is sometimes when you have a complex struct, which it's really big. And if you do an inspect on that, it just like splats all over in your console. It just It's a ton of noise. You're like scrolling back because it has these nested structs and lists and, and it can be very complex and very noisy. And just being able to do a quick derive on it with the inspect module. And we've got a link in the show notes where you can check this out in case you haven't done this before. You got to go try it because then you can say, I want to inspect this and you're only logging out and inspecting the things that are most relevant about that struct, which is super helpful. I use it just in terms of debugging and things like that. Where do you see this being an important thing, especially around inspect? Yeah, I think I think it's exactly around the the all the the privacy and security features that you may want, you know, and where your data may go. That was the main motivation for it. There are many other use cases. Debugging is a good one, but the, but that was the main one. And it's where I see it used the most. And just from the way I'm looking at it, is it, it looks like I could have multiple derives for the same struct. Is that right? Yeah, you can derive different protocols. So you can go on top of that struct and say, so you put this on top of that struct and then you can say, I want to derive inspect. I want to derive like JSON encoder. I want to derive like Phoenix param. So there is a good amount of protocols that you can derive. And it's, it's basically a very easy way of customizing how, how a data structure works for a given protocol. The main place where I saw the effect of this is that I, I typically use the JSON, uh, JSON decoder. And they have, a, they have a quick way of saying, yeah, just, just JSON decode this, only these keys or accept these keys. And that was really helpful. So I, I, that was the main effect I saw that. And I think, uh, I don't think it was along this release, but uh, related in case anyone is, is getting confused. Yeah, I think it's much older. Later on, Ecto picks up a little bit. Not It's not related to derive, but Ecto has a way to exclude keys or call out keys to be sensitive. 
so they'll get uh, starred out, for example, when they're logged. So it's not that's not derived, but in case you were thinking of that, that's that's uh, separate. <laughs> the acto callout is great because acto is going to call derive for you. And the reason why Acto has its own sugar on top of this is because Acto uses it in more places, like in a query or in a change set. So we, we base, base on the scheme where like, oh, okay, you want to mark everything as like sensitive and so on. Moving on to the next Elixir thing. We talked a lot about daytime, naive daytime calendar support and so we saw like improvements being sprinkled into you know previous elixir releases and up to this point correct me if i'm wrong it was all utc or nothing and this release changed that did i I get that right it wasn't it wasn't you could have other time zones but you couldn't create those time zones through elixir so because they are structs we had the fields there and we had the fields for all the time zone information, but Elixir would only allow you to create things that belong to UTC. And then if you wanted something in another time zone, you had to go to use a calendar library to use Timex. So what this release did is that it added a behavior for the time zone database and it added like daytime shift, I think, or shift zone or something like that, or something to change time zones and you could now specify one argument to when you create a daytime with a different time zone than UTC. So you could create others, but you couldn't, you know, it's, it's a, a weird place to be. And so this made it not so weird. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now, now it was time zone, time zone aware, or it could be time zone aware. And, and there is one thing I just want to add on this very quickly, which is we have, the goal is always like to slowly strangle like uh, the features from, or borrow is a better word, from Timex and Calendar and bring them to Elixir. And that was, I think it was Lau, the developer of Calendar and the one who worked on the initial proposal with Paul and, and I from bringing the, the structs, the calendar structs to Elixir. So he, he's the one who, who worked on this feature. He brought that in. Later on, another release, we brought calendar daytime formatting. So you can format the daytime using a, the STRF time, the string format time convention. So there are only two features in Timex. And the reason I'm saying this is because I'm going to call for contributors. So there's like two, two features that are missing that we didn't bring to Elixir yet. Okay. One is daytime parsing, but I honestly don't think we're going to bring that to Elixir because maybe we can. It's just, it's kind of tough because we can have like some sort of generic parsing and maybe that's going to be quick enough, but the most, the, the, tap, the fastest kind of parsing would be if somebody builds something with like Nimble Parsec. So depending on what you are doing, or something similar, or with like matching binaries by hand. So depending on what you want to do, if you have like certain daytime types, it's better for you to write your own parser or something like that, or use a library that like Nimble Parsec that can make it quick and efficient to write one. But if you want a generic one, then it's not going to be as performant. But you know, you're talking to the the fellow that created the daytime parser library that uses Nimble Parsec to parse out <laughs> gen- generic. Time. Really? Yeah. 
I do not recommend merging it <laughs> in, <laughs> in any way. Well, I, I was porting something over from Ruby and Ruby has time.parse and you can throw anything at it and it generally comes out the other side with a with a parsed time or and date time or whatever. Sometimes would be wrong and sometimes be very wrong. So it was hard to trust it. I, I ended up taking a huge sample set and running it through the Ruby time.parse, which is a set of uh, a huge set of Ruby uh, C implemented regex rules. I did my best to replicate some of that behavior. I didn't get all of it perfect, but on hex now there is a library called daytime parser and you can with some amount of certainty throw a, a string at it in a in a variety of formats and it should turn that into the best match for it. A date time, naive date time, you can throw some time zones in there. It's really awful about time zones though. Because time zones like i have to have a, a database of like time zone abbreviations and they're repeated so you can't really know that it's this time zone versus like versus like central time zone from the u.s versus china standard time in china so you can't you can't know that there's ambiguities there <laughs> that really shouldn't go into into elixir <laughs> i i was already convinced to not have them on core but thanks for double convincing me <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah dang it david i wanted a native parser <laughs> it's, it's a rough thing it's a rough thing if you know the format of the of the string that's coming in i think you could probably there's there's i think there's a good argument for bringing something like that into elixir but guessing at the format of of the string coming in i think is uh is going to be full of folly <laughs> lots of foot guns and i'd rather not i'd rather not have that in core elixir i'd i'd, I'd rather let people blame me for that for having a, a you know a library that they chose to bring in you know versus emailing, you know, Jose saying, why did you parse this time this way? You know, like, <laughs> this is wrong. So there's a little bunny trail there, but. <laughs> yeah, so that was one, parsing. And the second one is uh, daytime shifting. So, you know, I am on 31st January, 2022, I want to go back a month. Because today you can do operations, but they are either days or seconds. You can't do operations with like a month because... What do you want a month to mean? If you want it to mean like 30 days, then you convert days all the way down to seconds and it's good and you can do that today. But if you mean it's a month and then you want to go for like, your, then if you add a month to that, you go to 31st February, that doesn't exist. So now you need to detect that case and the user probably wants to control if it goes up or down. So that's the functionality that we don't have yet, but that would be welcome if somebody wants to work on that. There's probably a specification somewhere that says how those cases should be handled. Maybe there are, there isn't. I know Timex implements it, but that's something that it's missing and we want to have it. So, and the flip side of this message is that if you're using Elixir today, you are using Timex, odds are that you don't need to use Timex. Like, except for those two features, right? And a lot of people, they do like in a week, but they in a week, it's literally like seven days. It doesn't matter if it like needs to do something weird. If you're an Elixir developer, developer, most likely you don't need Timex. You can, you can use all the features that are in Elixir. And then if, if you're missing something, you can bring like the daytime parser, which is a library for a specific purpose. And then shifting, I don't think we have a library that only does that. And then you can bring Timex, but maybe we'll have it in core soon. And maybe you out there, dear listener, can say, yeah, I want to get involved. I want to contribute. I want to make that happen. There was another feature in there that you kind of identified. It was mix.target slash zero and slash one. Yeah, no. So this was a request from the nerves team. So nerves, besides like the environment, like 
dev and prod, they 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 felt like there is a additional variant to this, which is like, well, I'm running something on the host, I'm running something on a Raspberry Pi, or I'm running something on something else. So they had this idea of target. They were using environment variables and they had conditionals in their mixy access. So, you know, like, hey, you know, if I'm in a Raspberry Pi, I want to bring this, but maybe another device needs to use something different. And Target was, after some conversations, I think just Justin proposed it at the time. He, we kind of like, okay, we're going to have this idea of Target, which in all ways kind of behave like, almost always behave very close, similar to an environment. It behaves very similar to, uh, to environment. But it's it's different. It's a different environment variable that you set, so you can kind of have like these two orthogonal things and have like two dimensions to change your build if you're working with embedded. Relatively speaking, I think it's a, a small feature, but I think it was like extremely helpful to the nerves folks. And I think this kind of shows like even for those releases, in a way, it was small. But I think those two releases, one seven and one eight, they are so nice because it's just like. Like everything is becoming more integrated, you know, like more integrated with Erlang, more integrated with Nerves and the different projects happening in the community. So in a way, it kind of like fulfills my vision that the language is there to be like supporting the ecosystem around it, right? And not necessarily to be the thing that is leading the ecosystem. Well, now we got to talk about Elixir 1.9. It was November 2019. You teased it ahead of time that there was some big stuff in 1.9. What was that big thing that came here? Yeah, so some more context, right? So like daytimes, the, the daytime. Some people would complain about daytimes, you know, but that's a smaller, smaller set of folks. But everybody has to do this other thing that you're about to talk about. So this touched a much wider group of people. And if I could generalize, this was probably the longest and biggest pain point that people had about Elixir. How did you solve it? What could it be? <laughs> In 1.9, we added uh, releases to Elixir and we started on a path uh, revamping configuration and changing how you configure applications and improve the guidelines around it. So yes, Alexander developers from back then remembered that configuration. It took a while for us to figure out uh, what is the role of configuration and how we want to configure it. So first it was in the config files, but then there were a lot of pushback on that. We tried to bring some of the configuration to like the initialization of the supervision tree. And then there was a lot of pushback on that. And then there's like, what is a compile time configuration? When those things, they were appearing, they were unknown unknowns. Like, you know, like we did not know that those things, they were problematic. As people were having larger and larger applications, it was becoming clear that those things were a pain point. So configuration is a big part of it. And the other one was deployment. And I, I had to admit that I was a little bit stubborn, right? Because I feel it's, it's something funny because, you know, like if you get like Ruby, or Python and JavaScript, right? What you do when you deploy is that you kind of like, yeah, you go to the machine, you download your dependencies and you run your application and running that application is actually going to go and compile the code. And then I would tell people like, hey, you know, like just do that because that's literally what you're doing in those other languages and everybody is seemingly fine, right? I think there were two things in Elixir that kind of made people like 
not really like when I gave that answer uh, very much, which was that first being a compiled language, people really felt that they should be able to just compile everything and, and send it and not have to compile things on the, the, the machine that you are going to run on. And I think the other one was actually pressure from, from languages like Go and Rust that actually makes that super easy to just get an artifact and run in production. And we don't have as easy as them because they can cross-compile. We don't have that. But it was clearly a pain point. And also there are like a lot of variables in there. So this was kind of like a, a perfect storm of like pain from people had in the past and then dockyards saying, hey, we want to solve this problem. Having Paul work on it, I think a year ago to that. So they said like, hey, you know, we... We want to, Paul is going to work on it. And so before releases were added to Elixir, we had a project called Distillery. And that was the main way people build releases. And I'm realizing that I should make a parenthesis and explain what a release is. So releases is a way to create like a package, like package everything, your application, the Erlang VM, all of your dependencies to package everything that you can go and run in the production machine as long as you have like the same architecture. So that's what is release what about. And Distillery took care of it. And then in this process of creating like distillery two, Paul developed things like configuration providers that eventually became part of Elixir. At this time, I think it was like everything, like the community really needed it. Paul had explored a lot of the unknowns unknowns and it was really clear where we should go. And then we felt confident as like, you know, I think a lot of the answers, they have been answered, like the huge majority of them and we can bring this to Elixir. And I think the benefit of bringing this to Elixir, looking back, is the unification approach. Like, even if it could be done by distillery, I think unifying and have a, a way of doing this kind of help the whole community to like stand behind the solution and having more documentation, having more materials written about it. And also what, what I started talking about is like trying to solve the problem with configuration. Uh, kind of once and for all, and like where configuration happens, where how does it impact our releases and this kind of stuff. So it was really like trying to solve the deployment problem. And I think something that also helped cause this deployment problem is also Docker and deployment in general, in the sense that there are just so many ways to deploy things. Let's say it's like a complex equation, right? So like there are many choices you can make, like are you deploying to a platform as a service? Are you using Docker, right? They are like, so many variables that you can do and then like, hey, should I use release? Should I compile it in the host? And I think like eliminating, even if it doesn't solve the whole equation, like eliminating a variable or like really reducing a variable to say like, hey, you should most likely be doing this. It's something that I underestimated and but I think it brought a lot of value to, to people to the point that like, I think Phoenix today has something that's like generating a Docker file for you. So it's very easy for you to deploy to something with Docker. So I want to point out that this is 1.9, and we have the benefit of hindsight and probably working on newer versions of Elixir. But 1.9 introduced the config slash releases file. That's since changed. So like this, this is just the beginning of that. Uh, I remember that being a big pain point for me. Is is like I I would know myself where to put runtime secrets, right? It's it's when the app boots. But a lot of folks have already, you know, at this time, they may have already launched their Elixir program, their, their Elixir application, and they've already built their CI pipeline or their, you know, their deployment pipeline. And they, they probably, maybe mistakenly, 
moved where their secrets get baked into the artifact itself, right? I think generally that's that's a, a bad practice. But anyway, so it wasn't so much like in 1.9, now we have this new and better way. It was also unbreaking or, or unlearning some of the things that we may have already set up for ourselves. So it wasn't just like, oh, there's a new feature that I can start using it. Let's start using it. It was also, oh, now I probably should also change how I deploy. Not necessarily because of Elixir. That's just because now I've learned something. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah and, and config releases was such, let's say, a big success. It really resonated with people to the point that you don't use it today because we have generalized it into config slash runtime that works both for releases and makes projects. So it really, it was a big pain point of the community. And I think this was like the beginning of seeing it all addressed. I totally agree that this really was a process. And a lot of that was that that question of as this feature came out, it's like, well, how am I supposed to use this? What should I be doing? Because I know at this time I was working on an application. It was, it was a large application and we were using Docker. And so loading your source code into a Docker file and then deploying that meant compiling the whole project. And Sometimes it's a single core CPU that it's running on because it's in a, you know, like an EC2 instance or something. And it, the compile time was slow, especially for a larger project at this time, because we hadn't gotten some of those other improvements to compilation. The test of is the application responding? Is it healthy? Those would fail because it was just still compiling. So this was a, a very appreciated and important change that especially as you brought up that point of like all the different ways that applications are being deployed and the different types of environments. So the addition of releases was a big one. And and as David pointed out, it wasn't done. It wasn't like, here it is, this is the solution, it's finished. It's It was a process. And so this is where that process really began, I think, because it was distillery, a lot of those ideas have been tried out. They've been explored. And now we're bringing that into Elixir. Yeah, and this is kind of like the main feature for 1.9. We actually don't have anything else uh, listed. There was a lot of work in here. As a proof of my commitment, <laughs> I had to write like 1,000 lines of like bash. <laughs> and I also had to write like 1,000 lines of batch in Windows, <laughs> like Microsoft batch. Oh. So, <laughs> right? And it's so infuriating because they are like, like there are things that are necessarily hard in batch and there are things that are unnecessarily hard in batch and they are like the complete opposite of each other. <laughs> and it, it, a lot of it was about like finding the proper compromises because like I would want to add some feature, but it was like to be like kind of impossible to implement it in batch. And then I had to go back. Well, not not to say it's all about releases, though. I think 1.9 was that was definitely the big the big deal. But one other thing worth mentioning is that since we were talking about date times and such, UTC date times now have their own sigil. So that was a little usability thing. Instead of always having to do from naive date time and then convert or or, or specify that it's UTC, you know, do do a little pipeline there. Now you could just instantaneously write you know the sigil and it would uh, it would just work. So that was a nice feature in my world. You know, since I was writing that daytime parser, it simplified a lot of my tests. <laughs> that was awesome. You know, we started with the short list and then we discovered, hey, there's a lot that we can learn and discuss and get insight on. So we've talked about Elixir 1.7, 1.8, 1.9, very cool stuff. Have links to all that in the show notes with the change logs and links to some of the functions that we were talking about where you can dig deeper. And see you in a month. 
Thank you, Jose, for joining us. And we'll have links to where you can follow Jose online on Twitter. That's where you tend to be most active. And uh, definitely, we will look forward to talking with you next month as we go to the next segment, part four of our five-part series, counting down to Elixir's release anniversary. But that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.